Hello, and welcome to Beyond Digital, a B4B podcast brought to you by DMI. In this podcast, we move beyond the transactional B2B conversation and focus on B4B storytelling. We dive into the unique journeys of industry disruptors, change makers, and the thought leaders that are driving transformation through a new model, one based on shared value and ecosystem mindset in the convergence of business and technology. We discuss all things digital evolution, from optimizing technology and transforming business models to innovating at the edge. Join us as we retrace the footsteps of these leaders, hear about their successes and challenges as we move beyond digital together. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Beyond Digital. I'm your host, Adam Kleschinski, and we're joined today by guests Mike Graziano and Kelly Gage. We'll be discussing all things past, present, and future of e-commerce, the Mock Alliance, commerce tools, and composable commerce. Kelly is the chief product officer at Commerce Tools and co-founder of the Mock Alliance. He's a four-time O'Reilly author on commerce tech and is the co-host of the Commerce Tomorrow podcast. He's also previously worked as Oracle's microservices lead and as a senior architect at ATG. Mike Graziano is DMI's Senior Vice President of Global Sales and Alliances for the Digital Commerce Group. Graz, as he's been known for 24 years in the industry, has an extensive experience in commerce, alliances, and sales to drive growth for the company. His career path spans from tanks to technology, as he's served as a tank platoon commander in the Marine Corps, later entering the tech sector during the dot-com era of the mid-90s. With that, I'll hand it off to Graz to get us started. Thank you, Adam, and hello, Kelly. With full transparency, Kelly and I have known each other over the years, and both of us have built our careers working with a monolithic platform, in our case, ATG or Oracle Commerce. And both of us actually spent some time working there, too. So, Kelly, you're wearing two hats these days. You're the chief product officer at Commerce Tools, and you're also the president and co-founder of the Mock Alliance. So let's start off with a definition. What does Mock stand for? Well, thanks for having me. So Mock stands for uh, microservices, APIs, cloud-native multi-tenant SaaS, and headless, M-A-C-H. And we actually came up with that term at Commerce Tools in 2017, late 2017, as a way to describe what we were doing because nobody had really coined the term for that collection of technology that's being applied to commerce. And we started using it. And we started uh, using it in our marketing, and we had partners start to use it as well. And we even had somebody apply to be a developer at Commerce Tools, and he claimed that he was a mock-certified developer. (laughs) And we thought, all right, there there has to be something to this, right? This is clearly a term that's really stuck. And then at the same time, we thought, well, you know, let's go further with this. We had some close partners that we had worked with. So Content Stack, Ampliance, EPAM, and vault And we each threw in 100,000. And we said, let's create this as a separate standalone entity. And let's educate folks on what Mock is. And now today we're at 31 members and counting. So pretty uh, excited with the traction we've had so far. No, fantastic. And uh, on behalf of DMI, we are a proud member of the Mock Alliance and also a Commerce Tools premier partner, something that we're rather proud of as well. 
Yeah, we very much appreciate your uh, your joining the Mock Alliance, and it, it's good to have like-minded folks uh, all working together towards the same goal here. So, Kelly, how exactly did you get into technology? What was it about it that here you are now, the Chief Product Officer of Commerce Tools? Can you tell us a little bit about the journey? Sure. You know, I was a kid in the 90s, and I really liked web development back in the day. I had a lot of fun doing that. And even in high school, I built a lot of websites for local area businesses. And I went to university, and my first summer, I was looking for a summer job, and I got a great opportunity at Footlocker.com which I didn't realize was just down the road for me. And they were in the midst of doing the biggest ATG implementation in the world at that time. So my job there was to take Photoshop images of mock-ups and screens that they built and convert that to HTML. And I was pretty good at it. And then I started building JSP pages and then working my way further back and uh, had the great fortune of being mentored by one of the, the ATG greats, uh, Guy Morizane. He was amazing. and. I ended up going to work for ATG then. So I was in professional services there for five and a half years. My last two and a half years, I was the chief architect for walmart.com. I had a lot of fun doing all those. I think it was 11 ATG implementations. I then went to work for Oracle as a product manager because I, I couldn't see myself doing consulting long-term, you know, just with the travel. And I ended up going to uh, Oracle as a product manager in their cloud group. And my last year there, I was there for five years. My last year, I was responsible for microservices. I ended up going to Commerce Tools because my mentor at Oracle left and I didn't want to keep working there. So I ended up going to Commerce Tools and I've been there for, well, it's coming up on five years in August. How about you, Gross? Well, you know what? To wrap this up, it's a little known fact. Is it accurate to say that you started working on the ATG platform when you were in high school? <laughs> I don't know about that. I was, I was 19. Okay, maybe a year there, freshman year of college, something like that. Okay. Uh, Although I actually did train my younger brother on ATG, and he did an internship in India an entire summer when he had just turned 16. (laughs) Wow. Okay, that runs in the family. (laughs) So, yes, he actually was doing it in high school. Well, on my side, it wasn't a traditional career path. As Adam had mentioned, I served as a Marine officer. And soon thereafter, when I got out, I was actually a financial consultant for Merrill Lynch in New York City. And after two years there, one of my clients was the president of a large division of a global ad agency where I spent eight years. And in the last two years, I became part of a group where the mandate from our global CEO said, look, this internet thing is happening. I want you seven people to make sure we don't get caught behind the eight ball. That was the exact words I am quoting. And it was fun. I mean, we had companies like AOL, Prodigy, CompuServe, Netscape coming in and doing the rug dance for us. After that, I then went full-time to digital and e-commerce specifically in 1997. What can I say? The parties were great back then. It was a fun era. <laughs> it was a lot of hard work. And uh, I think that's one constant through both of our careers. That's one thing that never changes. But what has been fun is seeing how things have evolved over the years. And I think if there's one thing that's different now as compared to 10 or 15 years ago, it's the speed with which everything is changing. Not just a you know a thing or two. It seems like the whole industry just keeps changing and evolving at an incredible rate, right? There was a time where 
hey, if you were, were an ATG architect, you just figured you had employment for life and were making a good living. Well, that's not so much the case anymore. And I would say the reason that I stay in this industry is for the people. I've really enjoyed my clients over the years, and you build lifetime relationships as well as with my coworkers. So it's been a uh, really fun and uh, challenging industry to have a career in. It has been. And, you know, what you said about building, uh, you know, lifelong relationships and friendships, I, I think it's absolutely true. You know, I consider you you, you part of that. So it's uh, it's been great working with you and look forward to many more decades ahead of us here. Well, thank you, Kelly. So let's say I'm somebody that's either responsible for an e-commerce site or I'm working on an e-commerce platform. Why should I care about a mock architecture? What are the benefits? It's a technology litmus test that has real business implications. So if you're mock-based, let's go through the terms and what they actually mean. So M is microservices. Microservices are small little applications. And each of these applications do one thing and they do one thing really well. And what's great about these applications is, is they're independently managed and deployed by small teams. So you can have a team of five to six to seven people, give or take. And you could say, you team go out and build a pricing microservice and expose that to the enterprise. And then in parallel to that, you can have another team out there that's building one for inventory and another one that's building something for taxes. And the advantage of that is you can very easily parallelize your development work. So each of these teams is able to release to production whenever they want. And that's in direct conflict to what we used to do with these old monolithic platforms where everybody had to release together in the same code base. So microservices mean speed, fundamentally. And then the A is for API. That means that's the only interface point to the microservice. So all the data, all the functionality, everything is perfectly neatly exposed through an API. And the advantage of that is that data and functionality can be accessed by anyone, anywhere. You don't have to create a point-to-point -point integration anymore. Instead, as a microservice team, you publish your API and you say, anybody who wants to and is authorized to consume this is able to therefore do it. And then the C is for cloud-native multi-tenant SaaS. And the value there is you don't have to call up your vendor and say, hey, I'd, I'd like a QA environment today, please. <laughs> you know, And then the vendor asks you how many servers you want and the, you know, the, the CPU. And you know, it's, it's just, it's ridiculous. We're very much in, in, in a service-based world where now with commerce tools and with all of the other SaaS vendors out there, you can simply create a project and then you can hammer that project as hard as you want. And we, as the vendor, scale everything behind the scenes to handle that load. And then finally, the H is headless. And the advantage there is you can have multiple heads. So a head is what a customer interacts with, whether it's a website or app or whatever that is. And very similar to microservices, you can now have separate teams, each controlling their own head, consuming the APIs. So ultimately, Mock is about speed, right? It's about allowing iteration. And iteration is a precursor to innovation. Yeah. So... Speaking of headless and APIs, what we started seeing about three to four years ago is that some of the largest retailers and the telecoms started building their own custom solutions, leveraging that approach. Now, if I'm one of those companies and regardless of where I am in that process, does it still make sense to consider commerce tools? There are... Some companies that are so big that it makes sense for them to build everything from scratch. And I'll give you an example. You know, Amazon clearly is going to build everything from scratch, right? 
that makes perfect sense. I would even argue, you know, walmart.com, target.com, those folks should probably build everything from scratch. And they spend, each of them spends well in excess of two, three, four hundred million dollars a year in just IT for just their dot coms. I mean, Home Depot alone spends more than a hundred million a year for just homedepot.com and their app. So at a certain point, it probably makes sense to bring most of that, if not all of it in house. Where we fit is in that segment immediately below that. And there are a lot of organizations out there that want to build some, they want to buy some, but what they don't want is an all-in-a-box solution off the shelf. Because when you do that, you don't really get any differentiation, right? You're just taking a you know website in a box and you're deploying it, but there's no real value in that. What we are, and it goes back to the name of the company, is we are commerce tools. We have tools for commerce. So we actually do a good job of splitting the difference there where you can buy our shopping cart API, but then you could build your own product catalog around that. Or you could build you know, everything but promotion and then you could consume that. So you, you can really pick and choose the different pieces that you want to use. And you're not really forced to use the entire platform. And we don't ship with a head. So you'll build or buy your own head as well. So as we take a look back, right, we had these companies that were on the monolithic platforms and then they begin building their own, what we would call composable commerce. So with that said, what led to that change? Why did companies start taking this on and going with composable commerce? Well, it gets philosophical. I feel like we should have some beers in hand or something as we're having this discussion. <laughs> Sounds like a plan to me. <laughs> so we had these first generation commerce platforms built in the 90s. And early 2000s. So think of ATG, of course, there was uh, Hybris, WebSphere Commerce, Intershop, you know, all those first generation platforms. And look, for, for their day, for their time, these were absolutely cutting edge. These were the best in the business. They made perfect sense. And back in that day, back in that era, you had a lot of folks going online for the very first time. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. I remember working on DSW.com, and that was the very first first website they ever had where they sold stuff, right? And that was, they wanted a website in a box then. So going to ATG and buying everything as a suite where it tries to do a little bit of everything. There was, you know, merchandising, there was search, there was personalization, there was marketing, there was AB testing, there was CRM. You know, they did literally a little bit of everything, which by the way, made it really hard to deploy <laughs> as an architect. Um, but still, they did a little bit of everything. But back in that day, it made perfect sense. That's what you wanted. Now, our customers are growing up, right? Folks have been doing online e-commerce now for 20 plus years. So the organizations need a lot more. In parallel to that, we've also had the rise of real public cloud. And real public cloud has dramatically decreased the amount of capital required to do a startup. So it used to be that you would have to go public or raise you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or you know, do, spend a lot of money basically to get to day zero for your product. And now you don't have that, right? You can have two people in a dorm room build a company and deploy it to AWS or GCP or Azure and pay as you grow the business. And what that's done, that plus the rapid rise of REST APIs, which are very interoperable, what that's done is led to this whole economy of best of breed vendors that do one thing and they do one thing really well. 
So now you have vendors like us at Commerce Tools, we're really laser focused on doing core commerce. You have a lot of CMS vendors out there. You have Content Stack, Contentful, Ampliance. They just do CMS, they do it really well. There's even a startup I heard of out of Helsinki. It's a great company. They have one API that they sell and they charge two cents per execution. And what they do is you pass to it some really awful text and then you pass back the date format that you'd like that text returned in. And it will figure out what that date is and it will return that date to you in the correct format. And we're getting to a point where you have this library of APIs that you're building. Some of them are are built in house. Some of them are built from partners like DMI. Some of them are built from vendors like us at Commerce Tools. And you're getting to a, a model where, where you can very quickly and easily assemble these things in like a Lego block style collection. Well, here we are in the present 2021. And something that I've seen over the years was Commerce Tools consistently moving up the rankings from the research houses. And then last year, Forrester, Gartner, and IDC all ranked Commerce Tools as a leader in B2C commerce, which I believe validates the platform's capabilities and mock architecture. What do you believe were the key things that led to this, Kelly? I like to think that we created this market when we launched the product in 2013. There wasn't demand for what we did. Nobody knew what headless commerce was. We invented that term and this approach. And I still remember we were at a Forrester briefing in 2017, and the analyst called us stupid, basically. He didn't say it that, uh, you know, that impolitely, but, you know, he basically said, this is ridiculous. Why would somebody buy a commerce platform that's only halfway there? And we're like, no, no, you don't get it. You know, this is something different. And yeah, he totally missed that one. (laughs) But what's interesting, though, is we started to see the decline of those legacy platforms. We started to see a lot more need to move faster in the market, especially to compete with Amazon. We started to see real public cloud. And, you know, it's interesting, just a quick side story. I have been hiring product managers like crazy. And one of the questions I asked them in their final interview is to explain the difference between single and multi-tenancy. And I was having really good candidates otherwise completely fail that question. They had no idea what I was talking about. And it struck me one day, anybody under the age of like 28, 29, 30, they've never dealt with single tenant software. They literally don't know what it is. So the question to them just didn't make sense because they've never had to go through the pain of taking a legacy monolithic commerce platform and creating an ear file and deploying it to an app server. And right, that all of that, they just, they've never done that. They don't know what it, they literally don't know what that is because we're in a cloud first world. So generally the market around us has changed pretty dramatically And we as a company, we're really out front creating the demand for what it is that we do. We created the category. And oh, by the way, we happen to have the right product to fit this need. So we spend a lot of time out at conferences, writing, speaking, lobbying analysts, other thought leaders out there. And we started getting some big wins. You know, we got Express. That was our first real big US customer. Then we won Lego, we won Burberry. You know, we started to get some really good brand names underneath our belt and we made them successful. You know, we made them happy, referenceable. They would talk to all of our prospects and tell them how amazing we were to work with and how great the technology was. And that led to more and it it kind of ends up being a, you know, a good positive feedback loop there. 
And just slowly over the past couple of years, it's really emerged as the standard approach and we've emerged as the, the default product here. So it's a lot of things. One of the things that I've seen happen is where many of the legacy on-prem e-commerce solutions modernized. And, and maybe I'm using big air quotes as I say that, but they modernized by being hosted in the cloud. So does that make them modern or mock? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so you you can't fundamentally modernize a platform like that. You cannot take a single tenant platform and make it multi-tenant. And you can't take something that was not SaaS-based and make it SaaS-based. And the reason is pretty simple. When you have a company at scale, let's say you have a thousand customers that you've sold your software to, those thousand customers expect your product to work exactly one way. And if you as a vendor completely rewrite your product, as many have claimed to do, but not actually done, to support cloud, to be multi-tenant, to do this, to do that, all of those existing thousand customers that the vendor has will have to completely re-implement your product from scratch. And that doesn't work. You know, you can't go to all thousand of your customers and say, hey, we're completely re-releasing our product, switch to this new pricing and licensing model and completely redo your implementation. Those customers understandably get very upset. And in many cases, they're going to look around and say, well, all right, maybe we've been a little mistreated by this vendor, you know, one of the big giants. Let's go look around who actually does headless commerce the correct way. And they're going to say, oh, commerce tools does, right? They've been on the market since 2013. They have a lot of features. Look at all their happy, successful customers. Why should we stick with our legacy vendor who is pretending to do something versus let's go with the actual leader who created this category and who's created the leading product? So that's what we tend to see. And that's why you don't see the big vendors actually rewriting anything because it would just be too disruptive. So instead, you see a lot of cloud washing or whatever you want to call it of people claiming to do things that they have not or maybe just innovating around the edges. So I know that this always tends to lead to some spirited comments, and I'm basing that on your legacy software vendors are lying to you post on LinkedIn. <laughs> I don't mince words, do I? <laughs> no, I've known you a long time, and that's one thing you've never done. Um, but in terms of those vendors, would you care to name any names in terms of the platforms in the cloud that are still basically monolithic platforms running on old technology? All of them. <laughs> All right, that's a rather broad answer. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you an answer. If it was built before 2008, it is not cloud. What it is, it's hosted software. And there's a difference, right? So even those that claim to have cloud versions, they still force you to do upgrades and other non-cloudy things. We don't have the concept of an upgrade. Twilio doesn't do upgrades. AWS does not do upgrades. It's the same as when you log into Gmail. All of a sudden, there's some cool new functionality there. That's how we operate. That's how real SaaS operates. Whereas these vendors will force you to apply some big patch six every six months or once a year and completely retest your entire monolithic code base and then redeploy it all. It's a good step in the right direction. It's hosted, but it is definitively not cloud. You still have to call these vendors up and say, hey, I'd, I'd like a development environment, please. And they'll say, how many servers do you want? And how much storage do you want? And, 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 and. And with commerce tools and other real SaaS vendors, instead it's, here's the project. And then in your contract, you've contracted for a certain SLA. We as the vendor then do everything to meet that SLA. And if we don't, we don't get money from you. <laughs> so just to be clear, if you go to commerce tools, 
you're never going to have to upgrade again. Correct. Never upgrade again. We are commerce APIs as a service. And even you can go there right now and we have a full featured 60 day trial. It's in production. You can just start using it. But we're not even a platform per se. That's the other thing. We're not a platform. What we are are APIs. And that's different. So because of that and because of our approach to SaaS, we don't do upgrades. Okay, Kelly. Well, I know you like to speak to the technical side of the house. I'm going to shift gears on you. Here we are in the present, and we're hearing a lot about the experience economy. CMOs, e-commerce leaders, and especially the UI UX side of the house want to know, what are the advantages of migrating to a mock-architected solution like commerce tools, and how can it best deliver the rich, timely, and customized customer experience, regardless of where customers are? I think it's all about speed. And I'm a big believer that innovation requires iteration. And what I mean by that is, in many cases, it takes two, three, four, five, six iterations to perfect a feature and to start generating money from that feature. And if you're using a traditional monolithic platform, you're deploying to production once a month. I had customers who deployed to production once a year. (laughs) So once a month is pretty reasonable. I think the fastest I've ever seen is once every other week. And that's crazy. In 2015, Amazon.com released to production an average of once every second, 24 hours a day. So they're able to very quickly put a feature out, get feedback on that feature, iterate on that feature, re-release that feature. And they could, over the course of a week, perfect that feature and start generating revenue from that. Whereas if you're releasing to production once a month, that might take you one or two quarters to do the same exercise. So it's really all about speed. How quickly can you respond to customer needs? How quickly can you get things out in production? And how much time are your developers actually spending developing code, writing code, versus going through formal processes for issuing database change requests? Back in the day, it was okay, but we've evolved quite a bit since then. Okay, so getting back to the technical side of the house, what are the top fundamental advantages of going with a solution like Commerce Tools as opposed to building custom? I think first and foremost, it's the ability to pick and choose the pieces that work best for you and for your business and for your team. We're big believers in not using the entire surface area of our platform or our APIs. I don't think it's possible for a company like ours to perfectly nail every use case that a customer of ours has. Instead, it's really important that they pick and choose what works best for them and figure out what's commoditized and what they can consume from us. So you know, shopping cart, for example, is a perfect case there. And in many cases, things are, are very customized as well. So front ends are very custom. There's a lot of business logic that's custom and things are, are built and, and bought and, you know, according to need. So I think it's that ability to pick and choose, whereas a traditional platform, you're stuck using everything off the shelf and trying to shoehorn it into your business needs, whether or not it works. And if you're going completely custom, then you end up writing a lot of code that's for very boring, basic commoditized things that are tedious and cost a lot of money to build, but don't really add any business value to you. Well, as we look to the future, what's next for Commerce Tools, Kelly? Onward and upward, I guess. We're in a good spot right now. The legacy vendors are all pretty quickly dying. And again, I, I you know, we owe a debt of gratitude to them. They were 
great pioneers in the space, but I think their time has passed. So that's you know, positive for us business-wise. Also, COVID has dramatically accelerated commerce worldwide. There's a pretty big expansion in who is buying commerce platforms. We have customers now at Commerce Tools that we never even would have conceived of having back at ATG. You know, we have BMW and Audi for in-car connected commerce. We have some in-app gaming companies, some really big ones that won't let us use their names publicly. <laughs> we have uh, NBC Universal, for example. So we have lots of different interesting use cases and the market for what we do is pretty dramatically expanding. And I, I firmly believe that commerce is commoditized and it's becoming more and more commoditized. And if you step back and look at the building blocks of the web and building blocks of IT, all of them have gone through the same commoditization spiral, basically. And what that means is you have all of these building block services, these fundamental services that power the internet. So you have load balancers, you have compute, you have storage, you have DNS, you have all these pieces, right? That you can then build um, your app on top of. And commerce is one of the latest to go through that commoditization. I think commerce is a key fundamental part of delivering experiences online. Everybody's doing commerce in some way. And I think you're going to end up with the public cloud providers, so AWS and GCP and Azure, each offering their own commerce offering in their own public clouds. And they're going to offer up commerce APIs alongside traditional APIs that they have for AI or for sending emails or whatever it happens to be. So I think this is all very positive for us. And I would be very happy being one of the handful of big commoditized vendors offering the service. Now, so let me throw you a curveball, Kelly. Beyond everything you just said, what would be just one more thing that you think we should all start putting on our radar now as we consider the future of e-commerce? I think GraphQL is, is a big underrated feature. It's being used pretty widely already. More than half of our customers signed in the past year have already started using GraphQL. GraphQL is a query language for APIs, and it was founded by Facebook in 2005. And it's really caught on, really, really caught on out there. Twitter uses it. Facebook uses it. New York Times uses it. We've used it pretty extensively. So it's getting pretty widely adopted. I think it's one of the unsung heroes out there of uh, front-end development because it allows you to very quickly and very easily build heads to your platform that you couldn't have before. Okay, Kelly, one last question, and we ask this of all of our guests. We call it the bookend. So currently, what podcast or book are you currently either following or reading? I've actually been reading a lot of books on fishing recently. My in-laws bought a little lake house and we've been going up there every weekend, which is great. And I know remarkably little about fishing. And I have been fishing, uh, you know, of course, in my life, but I'm actually going to get good at fishing this summer. So I've been nerding out on fish habitat and something completely not related to technology. So is there anything else you do when you're not trying to determine the future of e-commerce? <laughs> I don't know if, I, if, if, that's, uh, if that's fair. I like to run <laughs> quite a bit. What else do I do? I have two kids and a wife and a house. And that's, uh, you know, between that and the social calendar she has, that's, uh, that's about it right there. And then work and I can sneak in a run a couple days a week, I will. And uh, the weekends we've been heading up there and spending time out on the lake. So, yeah, it's all good. All righty. Well, Kelly, thanks for your time. And with that, we'll hand it back over to Sonny to take it home. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Beyond Digital by DMI. 
If you like what you heard, please like and share with your colleagues on social media and subscribe to Beyond Digital on your favorite platform. To hear more stories around intelligent digital transformation, visit us at dminc.com, where you can view the show notes from this and other episodes. We're grateful for your support as we navigate beyond digital transformation and build the B4B conversation together. Until next time, this is Sonny Bajaj, founder and CEO of DMI, wishing you all the best. Stay digital and stay transformed.